of the U.S.'s top trading partners and trillions of dollars. That and more could all be lost. That says the Chinese regime has grown ever more aggressive in the waters of the Indo-Pacific. In this special report, we look at why this area is crucial for not just America, but the world. What happens if the Indo-Pacific is no longer free, and how the U.S. seems to have lost sight of the ball. Welcome to China in Focus, I'm Tiffany Meyer. Waterways where trillions of dollars in trade washed through have been taken for granted. But what happens when those waterways are no longer free? You have a, a, a dynamic where you can't move without Chinese permission. I mean, this is the, the Middle Kingdom uh, fantasy, right? This is China trying to, the Chinese Communist Party trying to recreate this fantasy vision of a, of a Chinese past where all of the major decisions refer back to the capital, back to, to the imperial seat. That's Cleo Pascal, senior fellow with the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Now, why is the Chinese regime going after the area? For one, there's a lot of money involved. The White House noted that two-way trade between the United States and the Indo-Pacific totaled $1.75 trillion in 2020. And it supports more than 5 million jobs in the region. And Secretary of State Antony Blinken notes that the Indo-Pacific is the destination for nearly one-third of U.S. exports. But not all players want to play by the rules. One nation has grown ever more aggressive in the region, thwarting international laws. The People's Republic of China is looking at uh, moving its whole uh, sphere of influence further and further south so that it can get control of resources, uh, key resources. And you've got that in, uh, uh, happening in Myanmar, in Indonesia, in Papua New Guinea, and in the Solomons, as well as other islands in the, in the South Pacific. Greg Copley, president of the International Strategic Studies Association, explains that this isn't a new concept. Rather, the Chinese regime is taking a look at the history books. Uh, the Japanese, of course, sought to control uh, the Solomons in World War II, and it was the scene of enormous amounts of uh, very hard fighting by the U.S. Marines going up in uh, the island hopping chain uh, as they went northwards to Japan. But it was also literally the, uh, the anchor point for the, the Battle of the Coral Sea, which arguably was the turning point uh, in the war in the Pacific in World War II. Uh, leading up to the Battle of Midway, of course, uh, which was uh, another milestone in that, in that campaign against the uh, Japanese expansion. And as to why the Solomon Islands are so important? Key undersea communications cables all confluence just near the Solomon Islands. So control of the Solomon Islands would give you access to or at least influence over a lot of the undersea cables which are critical to the global information linkages, including the internet, of course. But uh, more than that, uh, the Solomon Islands, as in World War II, 
are literally uh, astride the access sea lanes to Australia from the North Pacific and, and uh, from the uh, Eastern Pacific. So, so really, if you control the Solomons, you can, can control a lot. And in recent years, we've been seeing movement in that area. China's expansion is uh, currently primarily maritime. So you can see it in the way that they're building up the Navy. The PLA Navy is uh, expanding at a rate that we've never seen a peacetime Navy expand before. It's launching ships at a rate of 7 to 1 in comparison to the U.S. in the last uh, four years, from 2016 to 2020, the dates we have numbers for, it launched more ships than the entire Japanese surface fleet. So clearly for China, the Navy is incredibly important. But it's not just military. Pascal also points out how China's dual civil fusion program is involved. You're seeing it physically in the Indo-Pacific. We see the physical installations, the shops, the ports, the fishing fleets. Because remember, due to the, the concept of civil military fusion, things like the fishing fleets are very much a part of the state. Uh, the ferries, all that sort of stuff, they, they're part of this naval expansion. That's what you can see. Under that program, civilian R&D, industry and other resources can all be rerouted to advance the Chinese military, with the goal being to push those military forces to become the most technologically advanced in the world. On the flip side, we've been seeing alliances pop up in the region. The Quad Alliance between Australia, India, Japan and the United States is one of them. The other is Washington's push for a free and open Indo-Pacific. But Pascal points out the key purpose of those agreements. What needs to be understood is what's happening in terms of the Quad and in terms of free and open Indo-Pacific, those sorts of things, is in response to China. So we had a free and open Indo-Pacific. We had a freedom of navigation. We had a rule of law by and large. And then it was disrupted by this Chinese expansion into the region. But lately, what's really pushed countries in the region to take action is Beijing's new security pact with the Solomon Islands. To begin with, what is so concerning about the deal? Dr. Malcolm Davis, senior analyst in defense strategy and capability at ASPA in Canberra, Australia, explains. Solomon Islands geographically is positioned such that a Chinese military base there would allow China to uh, essentially sever the sea lines of communication, the trade, the, essentially the maritime trade routes between Australia and the United States. Uh, and of course, uh, once they have a base in the Solomon Islands, uh, then they can use that as a jumping off point for expanding their influence through the South Pacific further. So for all these reasons, it's a really concerning situation and it's, it's fundamentally changed our security environment for the worse. And as a result, there's a lot more activity in the area. Now with this security agreement with the Solomon Islands, with uh, the talk about uh, basing even on the west coast of Africa, there is a huge, huge concern that this is getting to a point where it will be very difficult to recreate the sort of freedoms that we used to have not that long ago. So in that context, you're seeing a lot of alliances being formed, partnerships being formed at the economic level, which is the initial entry point for China generally before it develops a strategic foothold, and then also at the strategic level and the military level. So we're starting to see um, concerns across the region about how China is behaving, and it's forcing a level of response that we haven't seen before. The Quad Summit is said to be held in Tokyo towards the end of May. 
That's unless Australia's general elections right before it don't add pushback. It'll be three days after the Australian election. So uh, that'll be a very telling uh, which, which leader ends up going because both leaders have said, both the leaders of both parties up for uh, election are talking about the Solomon Islands and about how it's a critical issue, but they have different pathways towards uh, resolving it. The Quad leaders held a virtual meeting at the beginning of March, expressing concerns over what's happening in Ukraine. Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison said at the time that the alliances cannot allow what is happening in Ukraine now to ever happen in the Indo-Pacific. Indian Prime Minister Modi underlined that the Quad must remain focused on its core objective of promoting peace, stability and prosperity in the Indo-Pacific region. Now, as for the in-person meeting coming up at the end of May, Pascal notes what could go down. Ideally, what you'd get is uh, overlapping approaches. So the Indian uh, approach might be economic, the U.S. might be whole of society. Ideally, the Australians would broaden out and offer uh, more than just dealing with the government, the Sogavari government, and a learning from each other and an adaptation from each other. They are very important in these meetings because you can talk to each other and say quietly, not in the press, we don't think your approach is working. This is what we did, for example, in the Maldives or in the Seychelles. Uh, and I think this is what you can do here. If you don't want to do it, that's fine. This is what we're going to do. Don't get worried about it. If we're doing it, we're doing it for the sake of the security of a free and open Indo-Pacific. So they're very, they're very important meetings. But even as the U.S. and allies move to counter the Chinese regime's growing assertiveness, the regime is pushing right back. Right now, Taiwan, along with Japan and the Philippines, hems the Chinese regime's naval expansion in what's known as the first island chain. But the Chinese regime is working to counter that through the Solomon Islands. The Chinese can do the same thing to, to Australia, cut it in, just make sure that it can't get out, make sure it can't be resupplied. So that becomes very helpful from a Chinese perspective if you're doing a fast strike on Taiwan. So if you're hitting Taiwan quickly and you can interdict Australia so it can't operate, it can't break a, of its the island chain that China has created, you've knocked off that quad. And if one of the biggest pillars of the first island chain falls. And if you've hit Taiwan, you've knocked off Japan. You've made it very difficult for Japan to come down. And then India, there would be probably another tactic that might involve something coming from the land side, maybe down from the Himalayas. So you're starting to knock off elements of the quad in a very physical perspective, a very physical way. So these old World War II maps, if you take a look at where those battles were, you'll understand why those areas are still important and why China is trying to position itself to get those exact same deep water ports, those exact same airports, those exact same choke points in order to be able to constrict uh, any sort of response that is designed to constrain its own actions. But that expansion has gone into some areas that might not be as well known. What it's done in uh, the Solomons, for example, or in East Timor is to if you like, drip feed cash to the right politicians. In the case of the Solomons, this was it was clear that uh, to get the Sogavari government in, into power in the Solomon Islands was uh, a, a very inexpensive operation. And they supported uh, uh, Mr. Sogavari in taking control 
uh, of the government there. It was a, a swing vote of literally one or two uh, parliamentarians. Once that happened, uh, Prime Minister Sogavari was able to uh, fulfil his part of the bargain with Beijing, which was to uh, cease Solomon Islands' recognition of the Republic of China, Taiwan, and of course move diplomatic recognition to the People's Republic of China. And we could see this developing. Let's zoom in on what's happening in Timor-Leste, also known as East Timor. It's bordered by Indonesia and has a population slightly larger than the Bahamas at 1.2 million people. Copley notes it all goes back to one issue, money. The funding which the Timor-Leste government is seeking uh, for its uh, onshore energy uh, processing plants because it's got great offshore oil and gas fields which it shares with Australia uh, the, uh, and r again right in the middle of very key ASEAN waterways uh, what, you, what you've got there is uh, the Australian government trying to secure onshore processing perhaps in Australia uh, but the Timor-Leste government saying they want to do it onshore in, in their own country and they will seek funding for that from the People's Republic of China which uh, is part of the Belt and Road Initiative so this, this is one area where Beijing can find the kind of money needed for that for that development. And if Beijing gets that economic leverage, Copley says it can take its control a step further. We'll give them a huge control over the government of Timor-Leste uh, and the Timor-Leste government as with some of the other South Pacific uh, territories, tend to try to play off the best deals they can get from either Beijing or from Canberra or Washington. Now, Beijing isn't haphazardly going after just any small country at random. There's a game plan. Uh, it would give the PRC a great ability to project further southward and control strategic uh, straits and waterways through the uh, through the Southeast Asian waterways uh, and that that of course uh, is critical because arguably the the greatest volume of world maritime traffic and trade uh, the like in commodities goes through these straits uh, now for, for the People's Republic of China that gives it the ability to limit in times of uh, conflict, uh, what can go to Japan and what can go to the PRC. As President Biden said at last year's Quad Leaders Summit, the future of each of our nations, and indeed the world, depends on a free and open Indo-Pacific enduring and flourishing in the decades ahead. Given the area's importance, what needs to happen next? The first thing the United States has got to do is recognize that the real strategic competition which is going to determine uh, the fortunes of the West in the future is largely occurring in the Indo-Pacific region and not in the Euro-Atlantic sphere. Copley cites the current war in Ukraine as a mirror for what's happening. So the Ukraine war really played into Beijing's hands. They were able to uh, see all attention from Washington being given to the Ukraine war and to the reconstruction of NATO, arguably an alliance which needed to rethink its, itself in 1990, 1991, at the end of the Cold War. But instead now that's become the major focus of attention. Copley goes on to describe the economic side. The U.S. is funding this war in Ukraine heavily uh, to the tunes of many tens of billions of dollars, uh, not to mention the uh, changing the attention. So as a result, the real attention is being diverted away from 
the US Marine Corps oriented strategies which were designed to understand the similarities between World War II and today in the need to control these islands and to be able to maneuver forces throughout the region very rapidly. And on the note of learning from history, Copley adds... And the Marine Corps has been trying to build a new uh, doctrine to, to cope with that and build new light amphibious warships which would give them a nimbleness to com compete with the People's Liberation Army Navy in, in the South Pacific and Southeast Asia. But instead, what we're seeing now is Washington totally preoccupied with Europe uh, once again and missing the boat literally in, in the South Pacific and Southeast Asia. So uh, essentially the U.S. needs to get uh, its eye back on the ball. Pascal suggests a change in perspective could help. We need to watch both India and the Pacific Islands overlapping from each other so that India is the physical the, the physical land front line with China and the Pacific Islands is the first thing they hit when they come off the maritime zone so they're both front lines in in different ways one's land-based one's water-based uh, but they are part of China's overall strategy. China looks out and it, on one side it sees India, on the other side it sees the Pacific Islands. That's what they see first. So they, from a Chinese perspective, those, those strategies are linked. Pascal notes that right now, Washington sees them as separate issues. That whole Indo-Pacific vision, uh, which China definitely has, and you can see it through String of Pearls and through all of its other expansion uh, policies that are tying the region together. We need to be better at viewing it as a whole region, which is a Pacific-centered map where the uh, west coast of the U.S. and the east coast of Africa are the frame. That whole zone needs to be viewed together. And any strategy that looks at Taiwan needs to include an element, for example, that looks at India and what would happen in the land border if there's an attack on Taiwan. The problem is getting more and more visible, with the Quad Summit approaching and Australians preparing to head to the polls. And with the Solomon Islands primed to do the same next year, the issue may soon reach its boiling point, spurred on by new and strengthening alliances. But as experts warn, if there isn't a shift in thinking and a shift in strategic defenses, the results wouldn't just impact America, but the whole world. Coming up, we turn to today's news, a battle over data. It may soon get harder for the Chinese communist regime to gather U.S. data. Looking to counter Beijing's intel gathering, a new proposal from the White House is in review. More on that after the break here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. China may soon have a harder time getting its hands on U.S. data. The Biden administration is finding new ways to safeguard the country's national security, and a proposal is now under review. Washington is looking for ways to bar China from scooping up U.S. data. A new executive order draft from the White House presents a new option. If passed, it would give the Department of Justice vast powers to deny foreign adversaries, including China, access to the country's data. What's more, it would direct the Department of Health and Human Services, or HHS, to keep a closer grip on federal funding. 
and block it from supporting the transfer of American health data to foreign adversaries or entities owned by, controlled by, or subject to the jurisdiction or direction of foreign adversaries. That's according to insiders and excerpts seen by Reuters. The proposal also involves the Commerce Department. The department has delayed rolling out rules and investigating threats related to foreign activity, something that's frustrated the Biden administration. The Trump administration expanded the department's powers in 2019, allowing it to control transactions between U.S. firms and foreign adversary nations, including China. The new draft seeks to fix those holdups. It would give the DOJ authority to monitor compliance and enforce prohibitions, licenses or mitigation agreements issued by earlier White House orders. It would also grant the Commerce Secretary powers to decide what kind of transactions are outright banned and which are exempt. Government agencies are reviewing the proposal. So far, the related departments haven't commented. Citing another insider, Reuters says the document is an initial draft and subject to change. To end today's episode, a 90-year-old Catholic cardinal and other human rights activists were arrested in Hong Kong. Authorities also confiscated their passports, citing national security. Those arrested were all trustees for a now-ended legal aid body. That supported pro-democracy protesters in the city in 2019. Let's take a look. Hong Kong authorities arrested one of the most senior Catholic clerics in Asia on Wednesday. Cardinal Joseph Zen and four others were arrested on charges of collusion with foreign forces. 90-year-old Zen had been questioned for several hours on Wednesday in a local police station. He didn't comment to the media. Earlier in an interview with the Epoch Times Chinese edition, Zen condemned the Chinese communist regime's brutality in Hong Kong and expressed his concerns about communism itself. Now our rights have been revoked. What does Hong Kong even count for now, do you think? I think it is very confusing on the one hand and very bold on the other. It's not only destruction for Hong Kong, but also for China, and also is a great destruction for the whole world. Because in the world, we're all connected, aren't we? Now Hong Kong can be destroyed in this way, and no one can intervene. It is ridiculous. The arrests include activist and pop singer Denise Ho. The White House also called on the Chinese Communist Party and Hong Kong authorities to stop targeting Hong Kong advocates. On Wednesday, Deputy Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre called for an immediate release of Zen and others who she said have been unjustly detained and charged. Police say all were released on bail and that their passports were confiscated under the city's national security law imposed by Beijing. The arrests were trustees of the 612 Humanitarian Relief Fund. The fund helped protesters who had been arrested during pro-democracy anti-Beijing protests in 2019 to help pay their legal and medical fees. The fund closed in 2021. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching and see you tomorrow.